0: This is the Eco Business Podcast, I'm Robin Hicks. It's fair to say that some issues like human rights are touchy subjects in Asia. NGOs need to tread carefully as they campaign for the rights of minority groups, particularly in conservative countries like Singapore. The city-state recently passed a controversial anti-foreign interference bill, which supposedly protects Singapore from foreign interference, but has also had a chilling effect on activists, as well as, by the way, journalists, making it increasingly hard to dissent and advocate for human rights safely. So how can sensitive taboo issues be broached in a conservative country like Singapore? And what can be done to rejuvenate the NGO sector here, where it's increasingly difficult to campaign on sensitive topics like race, gender, labour and the environment? Joining the podcast today are Vanessa Ho, Executive Director of Project X, an NGO that campaigns for the rights of sex workers in Singapore, and Bernadette Victorio, Program Director for Fair Finance Asia, which agitates for a fairer, more sustainable finance system. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa and Bernadette.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having us, Robin.
0: Great to have you um, on such an interesting topic, both of you. Now, Vanessa, I'd like to start with you first. Um, Tell us a bit about your work and the challenges you face in, in standing up for the rights of women in the sex trade in Singapore.
2: All right, so my name is Vanessa Ho. I'm the executive director of Project X. Um, We are a local non-governmental organization in Singapore. Uh, We were established in 2009 and we work to protect and advocate for sex workers' rights here. Um, So concretely, what we do is that we provide financial, emotional, legal, and medical support to the community and advocate for legislative changes that will ensure long-term changes. Um, And we place fostering Uh, of close relationships with the community at the forefront of what we do. And and that's kind of um, how we managed to to survive over the years is really because uh, uh, the community really trusts us um, uh, uh, to provide with them uh, essential support. Um, And I think what makes us a little bit challenging and a little bit taboo in the Singapore, space is that we actually believe that sex work is work and that sex workers do not deserve to face violence and discrimination. The second point maybe not as controversial as it sounds uh, but actually in Singapore a lot of people feel that sex workers deserve the violence and discrimination that they face um, and so that's, that's um, in a nutshell what we do and, and um, the major challenge that we're facing.
0: Um, really interesting sector and some amazing work that, that you're doing, Vanessa. Um, so, Bea, tell us a bit about your work with uh, Fair Finance Asia.
1: Thank you, Robin. Um, And hello, everybody. My name is Bernadette Victorio. I lead the Fair Finance Asia program, which is an Oxfam regional initiative committed to ensuring that financial institutions operating in the region are upholding the social and environmental rights and well being of local communities. Um, Fair Finance Asia is actually supported by SIDA through the Swedish embassy in Bangkok, Thailand. And we have coalitions active in eight countries at the moment, Cambodia, India, Indonesia, Japan, Pakistan, Philippines, Thailand and Vietnam. Um, and we have always been also very interested to expand around the region to include more of the financial hubs such as Singapore, um, because Fair Finance Asia actually leverages A consumer engagement tool, which is Fair Finance Guides, um, which is um, actually ranking, benchmarking, the performance of financial institutions in key policy areas, such as climate change, gender equality, and human rights. Um, And given that, Singapore is quite a unique market in developing Asia as overall um, because it has, you know, um, obviously a more developed um, circumstance than other countries in the region. And it has quite, you know, a potential in terms of creating this consumer awareness, raising consumer awareness and how they could um, be leveraging their um, influence over their banks, pension funds, insurance, to act more on those areas that are probably more aligned with their values, such as climate change and human rights. And that's that's basically the reason why we are very interested to um, talk more about how this approach could you know be suitable for the Singapore market and to see whether this could impact you know not only the performance of financial institutions in Singapore operating in Singapore, but also to sort of invigorate um, civil society and the non-governmental organizations that are based in the country.
0: Now, you mentioned their consumers and, and driving consumer awareness to help you in that goal, um, beya Now, we, we ran a story um, yesterday, the results to which I'll get on to later, which showed that um, Singaporeans or Singapore residents seem to be less um, bothered or motivated by environmental issues, human rights issues, uh, gender equality than any other group of people in southeast asia according to a, a survey by global data so i think moving the needle for ngos in singapore is particularly difficult for whatever reason now now back to you vanessa i want to talk to you about i guess the difficulty of you doing your job right um i'm not as a journalist myself i find it quite constricting and tough to write about the stuff i want to write about in singapore because of the reasons we we know right but mm-hmm. vanessa what are some of the rules of engagement? for NGOs in Singapore, and how is it that you are able to approach such a taboo subject like sex work?
2: Let me start with the easier part, which is how do you approach taboo issues? Um, and I think for for us, um, I think the key strategy is to break down what the taboo is, right? Where does this taboo come from? Why are people so iffy about this topic? Why do people find it controversial. Um, And so when you start to ask these questions, um, you start realizing that um, there's a history and there's a context right, as to what creates a taboo issue. Um, So for for us at Project X, one of the biggest um, uh, contributing factors to the taboo is really media portrayal. Um, And this is something that I I keep talking about, but I I really find that um, people need to realize what they have been fed with by the mainstream media. Um, So firstly, let's talk about um, uh, a lot of news uh, especially recently, about arrests of sex workers, um, and oftentimes these comes with photographs of the women um, uh, who've been arrested, right? And they would have their face blurred out. Sometimes you might find pictures of condoms. Um, they would count the condoms and say, "Hey, look, these is the evidence that we found, and therefore these are immoral women doing illegal things in Singapore." Um, and so when we are constantly fed with images like that, um, we naturally start to develop a negative impression uh, of the people being featured. So that's one type of media portrayal. The other type of media portrayal is the glamorizing media portrayal, right? And 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 we have um, Hollywood to thank partially for this. Um, from Pretty Woman being the romantic comedy that centered um, Julia Roberts as a street-based sex worker, um, and she met uh, Richard Gere, who's like this um, super-rich guy, um, and they live happily ever after, right? That 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 fairy tale narrative, that happy ending narrative, um, uh, again created this idea that sex work is bad and that everyone is kind of just waiting um, to escape um, from the harsh reality of sex work and so uh, and and these are just extremes right I'm I'm giving you extremes and and they're kind of a lot of different types of portrayals in between Um, and and as a result causes uh, people to have a lot of misconceptions firstly about sex work and then it allows for Um, degrading and derogatory views of sex workers to take hold. Um, And and I guess culture has a part to play as well. Um, I I don't know uh, this part I'm not most familiar with, but I think locally in Singapore, we also tend to think of of sex work um, um, as something bad, as something um, negative. Um, And I guess what I'm also trying to say here is these Media portrayals, this often very one dimensional media portrayals, what they do is they obfuscate and they hide the lived realities of women um, and makes it easier for us to stereotype them. So um, how do we approach taboo issues is really we want to tackle all these misconceptions one by one and to try and break them down uh, um, and challenge them and hopefully change people's mindsets as, as a result.
0: Which ironically um. enough, sorry to interrupt, ironically enough, you need to do that partly through the media, right? Which mm. must make it tough to get that, to challenge those misconceptions.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the power of social media as well. And maybe this crosses over to your other question about the rules of engagement. Um, social media, I think, democratized the internet to a certain extent. I think this is arguably got pros and cons and we can debate to the cows come home. Um uh, but social media allows us to put out our perspective on things, feature interviews with sex workers, and put out narratives that we want uh, out there. Um, but the, the downside is that we, we will never have the same reach as sort of mainstream media will have.
0: Yeah, so Vanessa, um, stick with you again. Um, can you tell us a bit about your campaign? You touched on it a little bit earlier yes. to help um, Vietnamese women who were apprehended mm. after a cluster of covid Emerge mm. in some KTV area in Singapore.
2: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So the context is, I think back in July, sort of late July, um, one Vietnamese woman went to see a doctor, and she found out that she's uh, she's um, COVID positive. Um, and as a result, because she went to see doctor, they realized that she was working at a KTV, and a bunch of patrons and um, hostesses working at these KTVs um, turned out to be COVID positive. What happened um, when the news broke is that there was so much online vitriol, right? There was so much hate speech that was going on um, against Vietnamese people uh, in general and hostesses and sex workers specifically, right? And people were saying really. Nasty things about them, and people were really treating them terribly as well. I think if you look at the, the the government's approach, is that they were encouraging the the men who visit the KTVs to go get tested. They will be ensured anonymity, confidentiality. You know, and if they don't feel like going for testing, you know, they can just stay at home, but just be honest with their families. Bloody, bloody, blah. And then, on the other hand, this was contrasted with news articles about sex workers being arrested. There were lots of raids um, of the residences of these workers, um, as well as the KTVs that they were working at. Um, and what the news didn't report is that um, some of the, the, the Vietnamese women were actually thrown into jail, um, even though they were never charged in court. And the reason for that was because they, they um, found them. Uh, there were no flights back home. Firstly, the, because Vietnam is really battling with uh, a, a massive COVID wave in sort of the July, August, September period, um, and so they didn't want the, the Vietnamese women and the KTV hostesses to be living um, uh, uh, outside, and so they threw them into to prison. Um, obviously, prison conditions are, are are dehumanizing. I think that is. That is the intention of prison, right, is to deter people from committing crimes. And so the women were actually extremely traumatized by their experiences. Um, they have finally gone home. There was a relief flight, um, I believe, at the end of September. And 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 um, those women we were in touch with have finally um, returned home Um but yeah, I think even when we spoke out uh, to defend the, the the women and the hostesses and the sex workers, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hate. There was still a lot of hate. There was a lot of like, oh, they're doing something illegal, you know, all these migrants, they're trying to cheat the government and they come into Singapore and they do these immoral things. And I guess... Um, I mean, there there are a few layers here, right? And and firstly, is they don't realize that it's actually the Singaporeans who facilitate the entry of these women, um, uh, who 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 find ways to to bend the laws, to find ways to to find loopholes in the law, to recruit um, uh, women from neighboring countries to come into Singapore to do entertainment work as well as sex work. So that was one layer that I thought was was completely missing. And the other layer is also um, uh, some of them. Some of the women actually didn't know they were coming into Singapore to do sex work. Some of them thought they were coming in to do just hostess work. And then um, they were slowly pressured into doing sex work. Um, And and so, yeah, all these online virtual, I I thought, really obfuscated and and really uh, didn't allow an opportunity for the women's voices to
0: be heard. Which she worked, obviously, to to raise those voices, right, to represent them as best as you could, Um... At Project X. Now, I want to ask you, Vanessa, and and later Bayer as well about this, is I mentioned earlier on about uh, a newly passed bill, a law, the Foreign Interference Countermeasures Bill, or FICA, um, which will affect um, the way NGOs can operate in Singapore. Now, I'd like to ask you both about this. What are your impressions on what sort of impact FICA will have on, on how NGOs can go about their work in Singapore?
1: Hmm.
2: Um, so I, I am very apprehensive to say too much about this, also because it is an extremely long bill and and um, while it has been passed that there was also a ten hour debate in Parliament and sixty pages of annexes that followed that that debate in Parliament. Um, so kind of holding my breath and also waiting for the operational manual to come up, right? Uh, um, I think. Um, there are many many criteria that you have to to, to to hit before they would designate you as politically significant. And then only after you fit that criteria, then do you have to comply with measures around reporting uh, where your funding sources are. And I think there might be also limits on how much funding uh, um, uh, you might be able to get. So we're all kind of holding our breaths to see, you know, who's going to get designated and who's not going to get designated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely a, a chilling effect, right? Uh, people are, are like, we are politically significant. We are talking about things that matter to us as active citizens of our country and of, of, the, glo- of the world, right? We are not just in this globalized world, you cannot just uh, um, talk about issues natively because we are all interconnected. Um, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anxieties um, around this space and we're just gonna have to wait and see
0: Absolutely. Yeah, as a journalist myself, I'm I'm sort of very interested to see how this um, bill plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, Bea, you're based in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, which is an extremely active NGO and an necessary NGO community. But what is your sense of, of FICA and the impact it might have here in Singapore? Any thoughts? It's actually
1: um, not surprising. Um, you know, as an employee of Oxfam and working with a lot of civil society organizations across the region. um, It's actually, we've actually been seeing this trend of shrinking civic space happening very silently uh, across the region. In fact, um, in India, they passed a similar law just last year called FCRA. It's the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act. And under that act, basically um, local civil society organizations are not able to receive funding from foreign sources, which means that it kind of chokes their sources of income um, which could lead to their eventual death. Um, A similar law is also being um, discussed in Thailand. Um, and while there's no law um, being passed as such in the Philippines, there's been this trend of uh, red tagging, um, basically, <laughs> literally means any any civil society organization, individual or any organization that talks about human rights are, are basically tagged or referred to as extremes, communists, and therefore, you know, um, posing a threat to the society and And this is a trend that we are seeing across the region. And I mean, one would wonder, like, perhaps, you know, with the whole saturation of COVID uh, and other tragic news around the world, you know, obviously with the climate crisis also, um, there are many other things that are happening silently that are, you know, leading to almost the legitimization of the shrinking civic space because they are Countries are actually saying, like, oh, we have to, you know, um, basically create more effort to, you know, combat specific threats or specific safety issues for our uh, society, and their, and and that, you know, could come with a cost to um, freedom of speech. And I think among civil society organizations that are working specifically on topics. Um, and it depends huh? every every country would consider certain topics taboo or certain topics you know crossing the red line. so um, in many cases since we work in um, sustainable finance since we talk more on issues related to sustainable finance such as climate change, human rights um, these are some of the red lines that we usually see in the work of our partners around the region um, and therefore are heavily impacted by, all these regulations, laws um, that are leading to shrinking civic space. Um, But it's very interesting to see this happening in Singapore, um, mainly because, you know, as an outsider um, and also, you know, as a civil society trying to engage, you know, the people locally, um, it seems like there has always been already a sort of um, not very... Active space and to have this additional law to ensure that that space remains probably inactive is um, quite interesting because um, it, it's probably <laughs> you know um, n- not very beneficial you know um, for societies like Singapore who has a great potential to create a pocket of freedom in this area where you know, in, in, in a region where such a trend of shrinking civic space is actually happening.
0: I want to ask you back to you, Bea, about um, how comfortable businesses are and the finance sector about talking about human rights. You touched on it just there. Um, but, but yeah, what about the business sector and, and whether some businesses and brands are brave enough to stand up for, for issues like, like human rights?
1: Over the years, they have started to improve their policies, Um, but obviously practices is another thing. So we, as civil society organizations, as Fair Finance Asia, we do rank their policies on paper that are published uh, published and publicly available. Um, But we also still, still do check their practices on the ground to see whether what they're writing on paper is actually aligning with what they are doing on the ground. Are they, you know, putting conditions in their lending requirements to ensure that the companies that they provide capital or or, uh, funding to are not, you know, violating environmental um, laws or human rights or or are having, you know, um, proper labor uh, conditions in their operations. Um, Are they, you know, Um, Becoming active investors, not just passive investors and companies that are probably not in line with those values that they themselves would like to say that, yeah, you know, we are a bank that is aligned with Paris climate uh, agreement, but then they are still financing companies that are not. So those are the things that a civil society network in fair finance we are really um, looking into. And we do get the sense that these are changing. Uh, We do get the sense that it's changing probably faster than it used to because there's a lot more focus. There's a lot more awareness, especially in the area of climate. Um, But of course, climate change is such an important topic. But what we are seeing is the failure to connect that with the fact that climate is not a standalone subject. It has so many issues that are related to social and human rights impact. So when you have climate disasters, when you have climate issues, what is the result? You have climate refugees, you have migration, you have people losing jobs as a result of certain sectors not being able to you know, uh, continue sustainably because they are not aligned with Paris climate change. And those are all, you know, touching into these very, um, we could call it taboo, but really clear issues of human rights, very pragmatic, very practical. um, And it's harder to it's harder to address them because you cannot quantify them like GHG emissions. Um, and, and that's something really that's uh, what we would re- like to really work on more as Fair Finance Asia.
0: Yeah, so, such an interesting area, Bea. Um, and such a difficult thing, right? The mixture of business worlds and investment world with issues like human rights. Um, Back to you, Vanessa. I mean, one one example of that in Singapore that we've seen is r- around Pink Dot, which is the the annual Gay and Lesbian Pride um, rally here in Singapore. Right? That um, there was a some sort of law passed, I think, relatively recently that that blocks international companies from sponsoring it. Um, but what was amazing is to see that lots of local companies stepped up and sponsored it and filled that gap. Mm. Um, Vanessa, I want to ask you about, you touched on it earlier on, the sense of how much Singaporeans, Singapore residents care um, whether or not a business or a brand is aligned with their own views Mm. on, say, human rights, Mm. uh, fair labour and and gender equality and the degree to which um, that is changing.
2: There are quite a lot of I I don't know is that the word greenwashing that happens a lot um, greenwashing pinkwashing whitewashing all kinds of washing that happens yeah. um, with businesses in Singapore I, I do notice I have noticed a sort of a trend that um, businesses have uh, been putting out advertisements to align themselves with social causes right and I and I think with COVID you you see a lot of these brands saying that oh you know they've um, uh, donated food to the frontline officers, you know, they have, um, they are standing up against climate change. I think that's something we've seen a, a couple of uh, brands putting out campaigns and videos um, that says that we all have to play a part in in, in ending climate change or, or tackling climate change at the least. Um, but I, I wonder... If this is what we might call virtue signaling and and doesn't actually contain anything substantive and whether or not that's all that Singapore consumers actually need, um, that they just need this sort of surface level kind of promise that, you know, that they are an ethical brand. And as a result, um, that's that's all that the brands are going to meet them at. So um, I'm saying this without sort of doing a lot of research in this space, but Maybe another uh, um, example to give is right, Ping Dot, um, and the brands that sponsor the local brands that sponsor Ping Dot. I mean, mm. there, 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 definitely was a shift towards okay, let's support these local brands since they are the ones who came um, to support Ping Dot. Um, but yeah, I think that's the only concrete example that I can think of that that there is a positive. Um, uh, um, correlation between businesses and human rights
0: yeah yeah right um yeah i mean i guess i'm fairly cynical i'm based here in singapore and i've Mm. as i mentioned earlier on know it's a story yeah uh, yesterday about singaporeans apparently caring less about social issues Mm. than say people in the philippines or indonesia i mean that could well be um because it's a it's a comfortable wealthy uh, country where people don't have to think about those issues as mm. much it's just not as much in their daily lives and their lived experience mm. as it is in say the Philippines are you seeing the sort of changes that you want to see in supporting an organization like um, Project X and the work that you do?
2: I think with the pandemic um, last year um, definitely we, we saw this Awakening in Singapore, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but I, I, from an NGO perspective, it was so apparent that suddenly people suddenly realized there's inequality in Singapore, and I was like, "Yo, we've been here for ten years now. Then you realize," but, but really, you know, people started donating money to to causes, and especially migrant worker um uh, charities managed to raise millions of dollars, um last year, um. Uh, as we saw at the same time we saw all these news articles about the dormitories um, uh, being uh, where COVID was spread um, uh, very rapidly and the the, the the migrant workers were locked up and not allowed to come out and they, by the way they're still not allowed to come out of their dormitories except like a select few um, and to only selected areas Um And then people also started realizing there was like poverty, um, people in one room flats, uh, not being able to access um, the medical health, uh, medical support that they need and so on and so forth, right? So I I do feel like that was a, a massive awakening last year, but I also feel like this year that awakening has kind of petered out um, people sort of maybe what we call compassion fatigue right in in in, in our, in our um, industry people are just so tired of hearing all these stories about human suffering and, and inequality that they've just moved on um, um, yeah so we I, I feel like we definitely have come a little bit back to maybe not exactly square one but um, I think there's definitely a drop in, in people's interest in human rights issues again. Um, yeah, as we continue to battle with, with, with the pandemic.
0: It's such an exhausting phenomenon going through uh, a pandemic. So don't, and none of us have done that in our lifetimes. It is, mm-hmm. I guess, it's not surprising that that sort of, as you say, compassion fatigue sets in. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked at length, um, Vanessa and Bea, mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed it. I want to ask one last question to you both about hope. Um, mm-hmm. I'll ask you first, Bea, about how optimistic um, are you for the future? Of championing um, social causes,
1: Singapore is obviously, as as I mentioned, you know, uh, more developed than its neighbors in Asia. Um, but we do see, you know, that within at least the work that we do in Fair Finance Network, that this initiative is also in other developed countries where there is also a similar level, if not much more developed conditions than Singapore, where we have more you know, um, aware consumers, consumers that are more um, concerned whether they are banking or using the services of a financial institution, for example, that is in line or that is using their savings, you know, their life savings in a way that aligns with their own values. Um, and you can see that, you know, with the Dutch, you know, being concerned whether <laughs> they are banking with a bank that's not polluting the environment elsewhere in the world or, you know, providing proper labor uh, conditions to the, the people that are producing their food, their, their um, you know, the things that they consume and um, So it's interesting for me to to hear about this from Singapore. And as I said, um, I mean, I will not try to hypothesize on why this is so, but I think I would like to hope that there is something there that could raise the awareness of the consumers better. You know, something that would connect maybe the fatigued people of Singapore, you know, having gone through a pandemic. Yes, sure. But... Um, It would be really good to see maybe um, a, a more targeted, a more thoughtful way to raise awareness on these issues and to probably, you know, stimulate the people to think how they as a country and as individuals are able to make the change that are positive for their neighbors in the region and around the world where financial sector of Singapore is having impact.
0: And interesting this, the survey that I was talking about it found that in Singapore at least um, you're far more likely to care about uh, human rights, gender equality, gender orientation equality, environmental issues, hunger, etc. If you're uh, a young wealthy woman. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, um, Vanessa. That's really
2: interesting. <laughs> yeah. I need to go and read it now. Young yeah? wealthy
0: women. Yeah. The real agitators of Singapore. But yeah, how hopeful are you, Vanessa, about mm. uh, the future championing? Social causes in Singapore.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think uh, Bea mentioned the point about connecting with 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 different people and different organisations and causes and activists, and I think that's so important, right? I think. Um, um, uh, oftentimes, sort of the the oppressive laws try to 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 pit us against each other, to fight with each other, to compete with each other. But I think the 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 most important thing we can do is to transcend that, right? And to start collaborating with each other and and connecting, even if we don't collaborate on anything substantive, to connect and say, hey, look, these are the shared uh, struggles that we might have, and these are the shared goals that we we are working towards. I think that's that's um, really important. I am optimistic. I do think. Um, I mean, we. we we, I see a lot of volunteers and interns at my organization, um, and they come with so much energy and so many new ideas and new strategies. Um, uh, so, um, and also with the pandemic, we do we did see a proliferating of. Of causes, of collectives, maybe not quite organizations, but just groups of people coming together to do things. Um, and so, um, I do think there is a need for maybe older and more established organizations uh, and activists to reach out and support and and maybe help to 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 motivate and and inspire um, the next generation um, of activists. So I am optimistic. Um, uh, I, I did want to pick up on maybe one point is is um, I really like hearing, uh, Bea use the word human rights all the time. It's a term that I used a lot when I first started doing um, Project X work. Um, but it is a term that I have dropped over the years because of its taboo nature in Singapore and, and it's so loaded. And so I think maybe this is just one of the rules of engagement, even though we might not use the same um, uh, language of human rights, um, if we can concretely and substantively work on strategies that Uphold human rights. I think that's um, that's also uh, that's also a win. I think, yeah.
0: Really interesting that um, yeah that language is so important and and, and how we communicate these issues in, in different contexts. Right. That's a mm-hmm. that's a great place to leave it. And uh, I must say, I've really enjoyed and been uh, very inspired talking to you both. Um, and connections needed between like minds. I think is one of the takeaways. Thank you uh, very much, Vanessa Ho. And uh, Bea Victoria for joining the EcoBusiness podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Robin. Thanks, Vanessa.
0: This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.